A couple of weeks ago, uh, we jumped into our new series uh, talking about the names of Jesus through Isaiah 9-6 and starting with Mighty God and just looking at the God, or actually today's Mighty God, sorry, look, started with Wonderful, looking at how God is full of wonder and the things that he is able to do and some of the miracles and the power of God, and that's closely related to the name that we're going to look at today, which is Mighty God. Those two kind of go a little bit hand in hand, and there's a lot of uh, similarity there, and I think it's important for us to stop and remember the context of just kind of what was going on at this time. There was a lot of fighting that was always happening between different nations and struggles of who's going to be in charge, who's going to conquer who, um, and then even from within the nation, uh, struggles of which different groups would be in charge. And so there's all this, you know, kind of the strongest survive type mentality and very much a, um, a, a, a warrior type of a mindset. And it's in that context that this promise of the Messiah is delivered in Isaiah 9, 6. And uh, let's just, as a reminder of that, uh, of that verse, let's read Isaiah 9, 6 together uh, again. And uh, this is the promise that we are talking about and that we are referring back to for the different names. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, I want to trace this term, mighty, mighty God, through some of the Old Testament and look at how this applied to God in the Old Testament. And then I want us to trace it through the coming of Christ and how this did and in many cases did not meet the expectations that people had when Jesus came because there were certain understandings of, of what that would mean because this word mighty is used more than 40 times in the Old Testament and almost every time it refers to people and when it refers to people it almost always is referring to those that are mighty warriors mighty in battle so that's the context of that there are a few exceptions where this word is, is used to refer to God and that is a few times in the Psalms and then here in Isaiah 9 6 and again in the next chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 21. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's typically used to refer to people. Uh, and even when it does refer to God, for example, Psalm 24, 8 says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And so it's, it's real clear that that's kind of the, the context. And this is the mighty God, even though that word is not used to refer to God very frequently in the Old Testament, the concept is there over and over and over again where God is the mighty warrior who fights on behalf of his people, right? He, he, he fights their battles for them. In many cases, they don't even have to fight the battles themselves because God steps in. And one of my favorite examples of this is the story of Gideon, which is found in the book of Judges starting in chapter 6. And uh, it, it says it's really interesting when we're introduced to Gideon, the uh, people of God were being very much oppressed by the Midianites, and so they uh, would hide from them, and Gideon is in a wine press threshing wheat there because he didn't want them to, to know what he was doing. He was basically trying to hide it from them, 
And in Judges 6.12, it says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, what? Mighty warrior. Which is really a bit humorous that he would call him a mighty warrior because that's not at all what he felt like at this time. And yet God had a plan for him and that plan was kind of crazy. You know, he, he remember the story of Gideon. He started with thousands of people in the army and God just whittles it down and whittles it down until he gets to 300. And then when he has just 300 left, he tells Gideon, uh, Gideon asks for a sign from God and, and God allows him to do that and the sign is the first time uh, allow this fleece that he set out to be dry and the ground all around it is wet and he did that and the next time he, he did it the other way around puts the, the fleece out the fleece is wet the, the ground around it is dry and so God gave him a couple of different signs to say look I'm with you I'm going to go into battle with you and then because he still wasn't quite sure he sent Gideon into secretly to go and observe the Midianites and he heard them talking and they were talking about a dream that they had had and their dream was that God and they said surely God has handed us over to Gideon and so finally Gideon has a little bit of confidence here that, that God's going to do his thing. And so he gets his 300 men and they are armed with two really powerful weapons. Empty glass jars and trumpets. I mean, that's what you want to be armed with going into battle, right? And so they take their trumpets and their glass jars. They blow the trumpet. They smash the jars on the ground. And I just want you to listen what happens. This is amazing. Judges 7.22 says, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. They didn't have to do anything. The people just turned and started killing each other. They defeated each other in battle. So the real question here is, who is the mighty warrior in this battle? It's really not Gideon at all, is it? God is the one who is the mighty warrior. And yet, he, he worked through Gideon. And so this is the, the, the type of, of image that would have come to mind when the people are hearing about this mighty God who was to come. And most of us, if you've been in church uh, much before, you've probably heard it said many, many times that the people were expecting their Messiah to be a military type of person, someone who would deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. And when you look at the background and you look at uh, saying he's going to be mighty God, that's very easy to understand, right? That, that actually makes a lot of sense because uh, the, the people have been under oppression for a long time. It had been decades that they had been under Roman rule, but it had been centuries that they had been under the rule of other kings and other nations that had come in. And so you could just imagine how deeply ingrained this was in them. That one day our Messiah will come and he will deliver us and he will finally set us free. And that was the expectation that they had when they thought about this mighty God who was to come. Now if, if that's your expectation, then... You know, what are some things that you're going to look for? I, I'm thinking if it were me, I would look for someone who probably had a significant amount of military training in their background. I would look for someone that is a prominent figure, probably coming from a prominent family. Someone who's as tough as nails, that's ready to fight at the drop of a hat. And here comes Jesus, who has no military background whatsoever. Who comes from a peasant family that was basically totally insignificant. In their culture, who is known for his love and his compassion, although he did pick fights, but when he did, 
He picked fights with the religious leaders of his own people. He didn't fight against the enemy who was oppressing them. And so none of this fit their expected categories of what this mighty God would look like when the Messiah came. And I have to say that when I look at that, I, I, I can understand why. You know, I'm not sure that any of us would have understood how Jesus was going to come and display the power of God. I mean, we said a couple of weeks ago that when we were talking about God being full of wonder, that he did display power in some very evident ways, you know, performing miracles and things like that, that, that there's no explanation of how those things happen. And so we do see the power of God displayed through the life of Jesus in those ways, but then we see this mighty God fleshing it out in other ways that they really were not expecting. And one of those really had to do with just the authority that he had when he spoke the word of God. That's something that people noticed. You may recall last week we talked about uh, the Sermon on the Mount just a little bit and the wise and foolish builder. That's how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. The wise builder being the one who heard the words of Jesus and put them into practice. It was like building your house on the rock. The foolish builder is the one who heard the words of Jesus but did not put them into practice. That's like building your house on the sand which didn't withstand the storm. And then you get to the verses right after when Jesus had finished his Sermon on the Mount. This is the very next thing that Matthew records, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, this is one of the primary ways that we see Mighty God displayed through the life of Jesus is that he taught as one who had authority. And that authority was not based on you know, his upbringing or his lineage or even his training. It was based on who he was because this is God in human flesh. They didn't always recognize it that way. Uh, but let's look at an example of that in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 24. This is one of my favorite passages that you know, we can, we can kind of easily skim over. But this just speaks to the authority of Jesus and how he, he wasn't always just, you know, it wasn't so much in your face, like I'm going to dominate you kind of authority. But just listen to this. Verse 24 says, Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now listen to this next verse. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, it's probably hard for us to fully appreciate just how insulting it was for Jesus to say what he said here. To make the point that God had done these things for people outside of Israel was incredibly insulting and they're furious about it so furious in fact that they drive him to the the brow of this because they're going to throw him over and what what happens jesus just walks right through the crowd 
Time hadn't come. That wasn't how it was supposed to happen. And so you just see this authority of Jesus, kind of a quiet authority. But then he's just able to walk through the crowd, and there wasn't a thing in the world that they could do about it. You see, what, what people missed was that the power that Jesus had was not to deliver them from their oppression of the day. His power was to deliver them from their sins. That's why he came. In fact, if you go back to Matthew's gospel, when Joseph was considering, he, he had learned that Mary was pregnant and he was considering divorcing her quietly. It says, uh, Matthew 1, 20 and 21 says, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's very clear from the very beginning that the deliverance that Jesus was to bring was not a deliverance from the, 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 those who were ruling over them. It was a deliverance from their sins. Now, the time will come when Jesus will be that military conqueror. And we'll touch on that here in just a moment toward the end. Um, but for now, we need to, to kind of look at these things and say, okay, we see mighty God displayed in the life of Jesus in some ways we might not otherwise expect. But what are some, things, what are some implications for us? I want to share three things that, that this means for us. And the first one is kind of what we were just touching on, and that is, that we need deliverance from our sins more than anything else. See, if I were to ask you, what do you need right now in your life? What do you need from God? There would be a lot of different answers. Some of us are lonely. We need to experience love and acceptance. Some of us struggle with mental health. We need some peace and some clarity in our thinking. Some of us are struggling to hold on to a marriage, and we need God's intervention there. Some of us are, are seeking to overcome addiction. And we need God's power for that or provision through rough financial times or a place to live or a new job. or I mean, the list could just go on and on and on, right? There are all these things that we could say, yeah, this is what I need in my life right now. But did you know the one thing that every single one of us needs is exactly the same? And that is that we need deliverance from our sins. That's our primary need. Although some of the details may look a little different for each of us, our primary need, all of us, is that we need to be delivered from our sins. And that's why Jesus came. See, our, our problem, as many of you know already, is that we're sinful. We turn away from God. We don't measure up to God's standard. And as a result, our sin separates us from a God who is holy. So our greatest need is how do we bridge that gap? How can, can we then be put in right relationship with God when our sin separates us from him? And there's only one answer to that. And that's through Jesus. That's why he came. He will deliver his people from their sins. He will save us from our sins. That's what scripture says. That's why Jesus came. That's what it looks like for the mighty God to take on human flesh. And so that's where we begin today is with an understanding that Jesus came to deliver us from sins because we can't do it on our own. You know, for hundreds of years, the people were trying to do that, right? The religious leaders had given them all these laws and rules to follow and do all this stuff. And, and for centuries they had tried to make themselves right before God and there's just no way that it could happen and so Jesus came to become our sacrifice for sins he came to take the punishment that we deserve and he brought that upon himself and as a result you and I can be forgiven we can have eternal life we can be made right with God and that is 
my greatest need, that is your greatest need, every single one of us, our greatest need is deliverance from our sins, and that's why Christ came. So this mighty God came to deliver us from our sins, but the second thing that we can learn from this and from the, the life of Jesus and what is mighty God, what that looks like is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus was God in human flesh who subjected himself to weakness. He subjected himself to other people mistreating him and abusing him. I mean, does that just blow your mind when you stop and think about the things that Jesus subjected himself to? And all through his life, but especially at the end of his life, the beating, the mocking, the pressing, the crown of thorns on his head, the, the nailing his hands and feet to a cross. I mean, just, it's just awful, the things that Jesus went through. Uh, he didn't have to do that. I mean, he said he could have called for the angels and they could have come and delivered him. But he subjected himself to that willingly because that was the, the, the Father's plan for us. You know, I'm thinking if I'm God in human flesh, it would take a whole lot less than that. You know, somebody you know, cuts me off in traffic and might just be like, zap, you're gone. You called me What? end of you, right? I mean, that wouldn't, wouldn't that be your temptation if you... And Jesus had the full power of God, but only to accomplish his Father's will. See, that's... It, it wasn't God's power to do things selfishly or even uh, to, to give people what they wanted, but it was to accomplish the Father's will. And it was this picture of humility and of power being made perfect in weakness. And that is kind of backwards from the way so many of us think of power. We think of power as the one that's the toughest and the strongest and the one that's in control, right? Don't mess with me because I'm the mighty one here and you don't want to mess with me. And, and it just reminds me um, how ridiculous that is sometimes observing that when you see, it's like, yeah, you, you think, you know, we may think we're in control, but we're obviously not. And that would be evident to anybody who has any sense at all. It, it kind of makes me think about one of my little dogs at home. I, we have two little chihuahuas. One of them, his name is Coco. Coco's very fierce. Here's a picture, picture number one of Coco. Doesn't he just strike fear into your heart when you see that picture? But Coco thinks he's really tough. Now, this next picture will show you just how tough he really is. Let's see this one. Now, that, that <laughs> that's really scary, right? Little Coco, who is the you know, wimpiest little dog, but, but he thinks he's tough. And so Sean was out with Coco recently, walking him around the block as, as we often do. And there's one little area, there's one fence where there's a dog that actually is a big tough dog that's in their backyard. And whenever Coco comes that fence, he just, I mean, going at it like they're going to fight, right? Little bitty Coco is going to be the tough dog and take on the neighbor's dog. And so he does this all the time. And Sean just usually humors him, lets him bark for a minute, and then drags him on. Well, this one day, unbeknownst to her, one of the, the fence boards had come loose. And so little Coco goes over and does his thing. Next thing you know, pop, fence board comes, head comes out, takes a chunk out of Coco's face. So we go, he's okay now. We had to go stitch him up. It was really sad. He had to wear that little cone of shame around. You know what I'm talking about? He had to wear that for a while. Now he's got some street cred. He's got a scar on his face, so he feels a little tougher than in those pictures before. But Coco, you know, thought he was in charge. Now next time we're walking around that same area, we come to that same home, what do you think happened? I would think, learn from your mistakes, Right? 
What does he do? He's like, what? Thankfully, the board was solid this time, so he didn't get his face bit again. But you look at something like that, and you're like, dude, what are you thinking? You think you're big and strong and powerful, and you're really not. And, and that's just a picture to me of how we are. So we think, you know, I'm going to be in charge and being mighty and strong. And it's ridiculous from God's perspective. It's like, you don't have any power. We don't. And so we need to be reminded that our power is made perfect in weakness. One of my favorite examples of that is um, the Apostle Paul and telling the story of how God had given him these visions. And he said that in order to keep him humble that God also gave him what he called a thorn in my flesh. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, it says, Three times I pleaded, this is Paul speaking, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, my, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. There's a, a great powerful principle for us today there to remember that, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus modeled that. The mighty God himself who came to earth modeled that, but then we see it through the life of others as well. And I, I hope that's encouraging to you today. I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself in a difficult season right now, if you find yourself going through something that's just so hard and it feels overwhelming and it feels like it's more than you can handle, you're in a good place for God to show his power through you. And I don't say that to patronize you or to, to, to dismiss the fact that painful seasons are painful because they really are. But I just say that to encourage you. As you go through those difficult times, just know that's when the power of God is displayed the most, is when we are at our weakest point. Now, one more thing that I want to touch on quickly, and we don't have time to go into this in a lot of detail but I think it needs to be said when we're talking about Jesus coming as mighty God. And that is that Jesus will return in power. Jesus is coming back as the mighty warrior that we see described in the Old Testament. He came the first time. His first coming was as the humble servant who came to sacrifice himself and to give himself as a ransom for many. That was his first coming. But Jesus is coming back. And when he, done, when he does come back, it's, it's going to be no joke. And it's not going to be, you know, uh, subject himself to others. In fact, Revelation 19 describes what it's going to be like. Let's just read some of these verses together to give ourselves a, a little encouragement of what we have to look forward to. Starting in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and, his, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following and riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, slave and free, Great and small, 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Merry Christmas, everybody. That's a little graphic, right? But it tells us the picture that Jesus is coming back victoriously. Now, again, we're not going to dive into this in detail, but I will tell you this. I'm I'm, I'm pretty excited. In the fall of next year, we're going to go entirely through the book of Revelation. So I'm already starting to plan for that and excited about that, where we can jump in in a lot more detail at that point. But just that reminder today that Jesus is coming back as the mighty warrior that they expected the first time. And so that should also give us some encouragement to know that, yes, his power is made perfect in weakness now. And when we struggle now, that's when the power of God and the Holy Spirit in us works. But the time is coming when everything will be made right. But I also want to encourage you in this, that we don't have to wait until Jesus comes back to experience the power of God in our lives. And the Bible does tell us that right now we are more than conquerors through Christ. And so although we may struggle and although times may be difficult and we're going to face things that are hard, we can also know that God will never leave us or forsake us, that God's power is made perfect in us, and that we can have that that encouragement to know that Jesus is coming back to make things right. So be encouraged, church. Our Messiah is the one who came to give himself for the greatest need that we have, and that is to be set free from our sins. That's what we need more than anything else. And once we do that, we receive forgiveness and eternal life, and we discover that God's power is made perfect in weakness, that the Holy Spirit in us gives us exactly what we need But then we can also be encouraged to know that Jesus is returning in his full power one day. He subjected himself to so much to save us from our sins. But the day is coming when he will come back and he will wipe out all evil and all injustice once and for all. So if you're going through what feels like a difficult season, let me just encourage you to hang on. Don't give up. Just lean into that relationship with Christ now more than any other time. He can provide everything that we need. After all, He is our mighty God. Let's pray together. Lord, today I I do pray that we experience the, the reality of that, the truth of who you are as the mighty God, that suffering servant, but also the one who is coming back to make things right. And so in the meantime, Lord, we trust you. Help us not to try to take things in our own hands or try to make ourselves powerful by human definition, but, Lord, that we would just trust you and seek you above all else. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you set us free. We're so grateful for that. In your precious name we pray. Amen.